Welcome to Lake Mount Worship Center, connecting you to the life-changing presence of Jesus Christ. We hope that you are blessed and inspired by today's message. We're going to jump into the Word of God together this morning and just uh, trust the Lord that He has something that He wants to say to us in regards to what He's doing uh, in His church in this hour and our part in it in this church We looked last week at the small beginnings of the global spread of Christianity. We've been digging in for the last number of weeks uh, in in studying and taking a look at the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch was, uh, again, this church that was the, the shift of the epicenter of Christianity moved to Antioch and there was grace on that church. Last week we were looking at the small beginnings of the global spread of Christianity, particularly the small beginnings of the obedience of Peter to go in response to a vision from heaven and a supernatural drawing to Cornelius' house. And uh, and Cornelius was a Roman centurion in Caesarea. And uh, what happened there was that there was an outpouring of the Spirit as Peter was preaching. It's just exciting. While he's still talking, the Holy Spirit falls on that church and people begin to be filled with the Holy Spirit, speak in other tongues. And so it was the Holy Spirit just way ahead of Peter, way ahead of the obedience of the church at that time and moving in on just simple steps of obedience to just pour out his spirit. And so again, we looked last week at how there was the council in Jerusalem that wanted to investigate what was going on, why was Peter going to uh, Gentiles' houses. And and so, uh, you know, he started to talk to them about the moving of God's spirit and testifying to them about what God had done in that church in Caesarea. And so the church, um, they, they responded, they, they blessed it, they recognized it as the, God, as the grace of God. They recognized, wow, God really did something in those Gentiles over there. God really did something in those people who don't look like us, they don't sound like us, they weren't raised like us, they don't know our Judaic background, they, they don't understand the things that we understand, but what can we say? God really did something there. And so they blessed it. But I want to say to you, you can bless things in one of two ways. You can tolerate it or you can embrace it. And what the church in Jerusalem did was they just tolerated it. They just were like, okay, that was God. And and they were just kind of happy with that. We here at this house, we don't want to be people who just tolerate the activity of the Holy Spirit in the world. We want to partner with God. And so we know that they only, the church in Jerusalem only tolerated it. They, they, they just simply acknowledged, well, God was at work in Cornelius, gave him a vision. And God was at work in Peter that he went and he preached. And God was at work in those people that while Peter was preaching, everyone got filled with the Holy Spirit. That's that. Isn't that neat? God did something. We know they only tolerated it because they didn't start a mission to Caesarea. They didn't plant a church. They didn't engage in any kind of discipleship. They were just like, well, there you go. God did something you know, interesting, we don't really want to get that excited about it because we're not interested in doing more of that. And so we, we were looking at uh, over the last number of weeks, the latter portion of Acts chapter 11 that talks about how there was some others, let me just read it to you again, it says that some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This is our prayer as we dig into this study for this last while, is we want to be a part of the somehow ever. 
The some, however, who decide we're going to just partner with what God's doing. The council in Jerusalem was like, well, that's interesting. But there were some, however, who were like, if God wants to fall by his spirit on people who don't look like us or sound like us, we want to be those that partner with him. We want to move in the direction of the Holy Spirit. Can I hear an amen this morning? Galatians chapter 5 verse 25 says, since we live by the spirit, let's keep in step with the spirit. This is the goal. We want to be people who are in step with the Holy Spirit. That means that the Holy Spirit sets the direction and he sets the pace of the church. Amen. He sets the direction and he sets the pace of the church. Our job is to respond to his leadership. And so we don't want to have our hearts set on our ways. We want to be like clay in the hands of the potter just saying, Lord, we'll do whatever you want where you lead. We will follow And so there was a beginning of something in Acts chapter 11 in this church in Antioch that's bigger than we know. So we talked last week about not despising small beginnings, but we know that what was beginning in in Antioch, the very small beginning at Cornelius' house in Caesarea, that then there were some, however, who said, we're going to get all in on this. And then Barnabas went and got, he came and investigated. He planted roots. He brought his prophetic friends. They planted roots. He went and found Saul of Tarsus and said, you're going to grow to be an apostle in this atmosphere. They just began to go all in on the purpose of God in that environment. They were pressing in. There was a beginning of something that was of global reach, and we are the fruit of it here today and the beginning of what was happening there the book of revelation says this it's it says that that jesus spoke to the church in in uh, laodicea and he said here i am i stand at the door and knock if anyone will hear my voice i'll open the door and i will come in jesus stands at the door of a church and says i want to go to church with you guys Jesus stands at the door of the church and says, if anybody's listening, I want to come in and have my way in the local church, a a local church in Laodicea. We want to be the people that aren't just, you know, answering the door. We want to be the people that understand this is his house. He can do whatever he wants. God can't invade where it's his territory. So we're not asking God to invade. We're asking God to just do what he wants to do. It's his church, that he would have his way in us. And so we want to to, to make that our prayer. Lord, open our eyes because we want to see Jesus like we were singing just a moment ago. So the evidence of God's grace came upon the Antioch church and it began to grow not just in numerical size, but it began to grow in spiritual depth and maturity. The fivefold grace, apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist, and teacher was, was rooted in that church. And they began to flourish in the purpose of God as they ministered to the Lord. And all of their mission activity, all of their activity, in fact, spilled over from that place of Holy Spirit-dependent ministry. This is a model for us, amen? This isn't just, isn't that cool that happened back then? This is a model for us, a church in revival, that there are fivefold grace gifts that are not doing the ministry for the people, but are leading the people into how to do ministry. And so there's, there's something for us to see. Two weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 13 and how the the local church in Antioch ministered to the Lord. They understood their assignment wasn't outreach first. It wasn't, it wasn't in reach first. It wasn't about running programs or meeting needs first, but that the first calling, everybody say first calling, The first calling of every church, the first calling of this local church, the first calling of every believer is to minister to the Lord. That's your highest calling. 
Doesn't matter what gift the Lord has placed on your life, your first calling is to minister to him. Not to meet his need, but to meet his desire. And so we want to be those who meet the desire of the Lord in ministering to him. Then the rest of chapter 13 and 14 is the record of the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey to Cyprus and then to Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch is not the same as the Antioch we're dealing with. And you're like, that's confusing. So says the people who have an Ontario exit every three minutes on the highway. Okay, so... Then he went to Iconium, and then he went to Lystra and Derby, and then back to Antioch. I want you to take your Bibles and go with me to Acts chapter 15, verse 1. I'm just giving you some context in history because I want us to keep digging in. There is much in here for what the Lord wants to do in this house. This isn't just history lesson that we need it, but this is also the ongoing history of God. These are the ways of God. This is the desire of God. And it's going to become even more clear and salient as we dig into Acts chapter 15. Verse 1 says this, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And so Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad, and when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, isn't that exciting, born-again Pharisees? Gotta love it. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Let's pause there. So this is what it looks like when people just won't get it. Like, this is what it looks like when you have a religious grid and you think God is in the grid and you just need to tell everybody else, we're just going to pack God into this small little box. This is really important. And everybody needs to do what we think. Born again, Pharisees, they refused to get it. And at this point, I think we can understand, they didn't want to understand. They wanted to force their way into the church. And the Bible is telling us that there's kind of this war of ideals, but really it's a clash in the spiritual realm, is that Paul and Barnabas are telling the testimony of everything that just happened. And if you want some exciting reading, read the rest of Acts chapter 13 and 14, where Paul is going and, and, and planting churches, and, and he's preaching, and people are getting saved, and people are getting healed. Uh, you know, in Lystra, he's, he's uh, you know, preaching, he heals a guy uh, in the name of Jesus, and then everyone's like, wow, these guys are gods. They're like, you know, Paul, and, Paul must be uh, Hermes and, and uh, uh, you know, Barnabas must be, must be Zeus because Paul was the one who talked the most. So they're like, he must be the spokesperson. And so they're like, they start worshiping him and like they had a temple, like it wasn't old folklore. They actually had active worship of Zeus and Hermes. So they, the priests came and offered sacrifices to them and like, no, 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 we're, we're here in the name of Jesus. And so God's opening up the door, but then some some jealous Jews from Antioch came and stirred up everybody. And the Bible says that they got the whole town to go from worshiping Paul and Barnabas to throwing rocks at them until Paul was left for dead. 
And we could infer from Scripture, this is just for free, but we could infer from Scripture that Paul may have died and experienced a resurrection. The disciples gathered around him and prayed, and he got back up. And you know what he did when he got up? He said, let's go back in the city and keep preaching. (laughs) Gotta love it. We need some of that faith in the church. Like the people who just threw rocks at me, boy, are they going to be in for a surprise. <laughs> That's what was in his heart. I was like, they're ne- like this, c- instead of thinking, man, these people have rejected me and I have, a, I have hurt feelings and I probably need to just talk it through with somebody for a bit. Maybe just take a little bit of time for myself. Instead of getting into his owie feelings, <laughs> Paul didn't have time for it. Instead, what he said was, This could be the testimony they need. The guy they thought they killed is back here preaching. So he's, they're telling the church about this. What you're feeling while I'm telling that story, like, man, that's crazy. That's amazing. He's telling it, and it's Paul in person telling the story. Yeah, so like, I think I died, actually, and the guys prayed for me. And anyways, I went back and preached. And they're like, you did? Yeah, and more people got saved. It was crazy. And then some born-again Pharisees go, Um, that's all very exciting and everything, but, um, did you have any circumcision ceremonies at the end? You ever heard of a flint knife, Paul? You might want to carry one if you're going to have all these converts. There's a little surgical adjustment that needs to be added to their salvation. I think we all can agree. Amen. And Paul's like, actually, that's why we came. A couple of you jokers came down and started messing with the church in Antioch, and I'm here because I'm setting watch over that house. I don't like it. And they get into a sharp dispute. Now, the record of that isn't in Scripture, though I wish it was. Some people took it on themselves. That's what the Bible says in in verse 1. They took it on themselves to come on down and begin to teach their, their interpretation of Old Testament application to a New Testament grace. Self-appointed ministry always has good intentions and bad fruit. I'm going to say that again. Self-appointed ministry always has good intentions And it always has bad fruit. What do I mean? I mean, to have authority, you need to be under authority. And to just simply dump a bottle of oil on yourself, gather a crowd of people around yourself, and decide, I'm going to just start teaching some stuff that they don't teach over there. And let let me just grab some people from here and say what I think you guys need to hear. There will always be disruption to that because it's not working in a biblical... Can, do you understand that God works through delegated authority? Yes. And that's what we're seeing in the church in Antioch. God put grace in that church. Where was the evidence of the grace? The apostle, prophet, pastor, evangelist, teacher. There's evident grace. People who are gifts that God has raised up to help the church, not to do the ministry for the church, but to help the church do the ministry. And it's thriving, and they're, 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 they're just, they're seeing their outreach is working, and they're preaching the gospel, and people are getting saved. 
And then someone comes along, and you know what? They've got chapters and verses to go along with it. And they pull up, and they're like, yeah, well, guess what? And unless they're circumcised, uh, this is all for nothing. Chapter and verse. Let me show you where you're wrong. You're welcome. I'm here just to rain on your parade. Just came with the ministry of wet blanket. I'm here to help. You're welcome. Just in case you're excited, it's not that good. And everybody needs to convert back to Judaism and add some Jesus to it. The chaos these brothers sowed into the church in Antioch came from a hardened will and from what we call groupthink. What do I mean groupthink? I mean that they sit around and when they talk to each other, it keeps making more and more sense. But see, the church in Antioch wasn't so preoccupied with talking to each other. They were ministering to the Lord. And, and if you can remember back two weeks ago, we were talking in Acts chapter 13, as the church was ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit so, spoke and said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the ministry that I have for them. See, we, we start getting new direction from the Lord when we focus and minister to him. But if we just talk to each other, we become an echo chamber of groupthink that, yeah, and you know what else? Everybody needs to get circumcised. That's what's missing in the church. Like, I know it's exciting, and there's revival, and apparently Paul was resurrected, and there's miracles, and, and there's all kinds of prophetic words, and they're supplying for us in the middle of our famine and everything, and that's nice. That's good. That's very nice, guys, but <laughs> circumcision's really important. And so they make a big deal of something that isn't a big deal, and here's the thing about God. He didn't ask their per- permission when he started doing a new thing. He didn't ask their permission. He gave a commission and expected them to take him at his word. And so when people began to take him at his word, he endorsed their obedience with the evidence of his grace. That's always the case. Write that down. That whenever you obey, you will find the endorsement of God's grace. He endorsed their obedience with the evidence of grace. And so these born-again Pharisees were disruptive to the move of God and they needed to be dealt with. And what you can see from history, here's, here's what I want us to catch because we sit on the other side of the resolved issue. But in real time, these men were the majority. In real time, these voices were not only the majority, but they were the authority. Because the epicenter shift happens after this. It's here that the shift takes place. Because in Jerusalem, the, the groupthink and the fixation on, on, on Old Testament law being added to grace, their stubbornness to hang on to that, God was like, I'm moving with people who will obey. I'm going to put the evidence of grace on those who will obey. That's true for you and me too. And so these men were the majority. They had culture and they had history on their side. What I'm saying is it would have been easier to just let the message of the cross become a subset of Judaism. That would have been easier. Paul would have got booked at more conferences. It it would have been an easier move to just be like, okay, all right, fine, yes. We'll do all the Old Testament stuff and Jesus. But the apostolic conviction that was being forged in Antioch was being strengthened for a reason. 
And it's so that you and I could sit here today and understand that we don't have to go through any kind of Old Testament religious ritual and law to try to approach the Lord. But we come to him drawn by his grace through the spirit of faith that, that God puts within our hearts a cry that looks to God and calls him Abba, Father, by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us through faith because of what Jesus did on the cross. We're made the righteousness of God and brought in to be the seed of Abraham because of faith not because of ethnicity and not because of some religious practice. So it's a big deal. Let's go back to the text, verse 6 of Acts chapter 15. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. So now we're going back to what Peter did last week. And he says, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and belief. That's him testifying once again about ministering at Cornelius' house and the spirit of God falling on those Italian believers. Verse 8, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Man, that's a good verse. He made no distinction between us and them. Because he purified their hearts by faith. Meaning what? Meaning we have become the seed of Abraham through faith. Because Abraham pleased God because he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what God's doing in us through the cross, not through Old Testament law and ritual. Praise God. And so he said there's no distinction. Now what then, verse 10... Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished... James, who's the lead elder, he's the half-brother of Jesus, grew up with Jesus and then discovered his brother was the Messiah. What kind of life did James live? He's the lead elder in Jerusalem. James spoke up and he said, brothers, listen to me. Verse 14, Simon, meaning Peter, has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it that the remnant of men may seek the Lord, and that all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, that have been known for ages. Listen to what he's doing. He's quoting the prophet Amos. We have that in your scripture, Amos chapter 9. He's quoting a prophetic word. He's saying to them, the law and the prophets that you're so ardently fixed on, let me pull from the context that you are so addicted to and tell you that the prophets were prophesying about this day. That God's going to rebuild David's fallen tent. Verse 19, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Man, that's a great mission statement. Let's not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. Oh, you want to you you turn to the Lord? Well, do you have a three-piece suit? You want to come to this church? Would you? Do you know how to get tattoos removed? 
You want to be a part of this church? How do you feel about circumcision? That's what these guys were on about. <laughs> and something got into James. He said, we shouldn't make it difficult for people who are turning to the Lord. Amen to that. So he says, instead, verse 20, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So here's what's happening. The church leadership came to recognize that was happening in Antioch in particular and in the Gentiles in general was actually the fulfillment of a prophetic word through the prophet Amos. In other words, they recognized, well, this is God. We thought we had the corner on what God was doing. We thought we had the corner on how God was moving in the world because he started it here with us. But it's obvious this is God, and it's obvious there's a prophetic word that goes with it. And so they, they decide, let's not make it difficult for people that are turning to the Lord. Now hear me, this is not lowering the standard. It's moving the emphasis from non-essentials to essentials for every disciple. So what did they say was essential? Because if this is what they determined was essential then, it's essential for us now. They're saying you need to break any agreement with idolatry. You need to refrain from sexual immorality. In other words, God has something to say about your sex life, and God has no opinions. What God says is truth. You have opinions. God says, and it's the way it is. So when God says this is acceptable and this isn't, guess what? If you get an argument, God wins. And don't drink animal blood. In other words, pagan worship practices. So these are still important essentials. Idolatry, sexual sin, and pagan practice will choke the seed of God in your life if you persist in them. Didn't Jesus say that? When Jesus talked about the good news being like seed and talked about a farmer going out and scattering his seed, he said you could take the seed, but if it lands on hard ground, it'll just bounce off and be snatched by the birds of the air. If you throw it into the, the weeds, it'll just be choked out by those weeds and the cares of life. He said that if you throw it in shallow soil, it'll spring up and look good for a second, but then when the sun really hits it in the full heat of summer, it's just going to you know, burn the roots. And so somehow we've got this idea like, oh, no, if someone prayed a prayer, there's no way we could possibly know if they're a Christian or not. And that's not biblical. Amen, Pastor Matt. That's true. You can actually tell a tree by its fruit. Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm saying. So, so Jesus said that the seed actually needs to be in good soil. So what are the disciples saying? They're saying, the, the apostolic leadership is saying, there are some things in the soil of your heart that will uproot the seed of God's truth in you and you need to take him serious. God has no opinions. His word is truth and his church consists of people who take him at his word without debate. They just yield to his standard. Amen? Amen. Amen. So the areas that they identified are vital. If there's no yieldedness in these areas, the lordship of your life does not belong to Christ. Amen. That's what they're saying. If you're living like this, you're not a Christian. Oh, you can't say that. They did. You, you can't keep plugging in here and claim some kind of, some, some kind of trump card. 
Well, I prayed a prayer once. Okay. Did it mean anything to you? Yeah, I don't want to go to hell. Well, cosine, nobody does. Well, do I have to change my life? Remember the rich young ruler? Do I have to change my life to like follow you? And Jesus is like, yep. He's like, well, I don't want to. And Jesus is like, okay. He's like, well, I'm going home. Jesus is like, see ya. Where does it say in the Bible I can't be sexually promiscuous and still be a Christian? Right here. Where does it say in the Bible that I can't consult with psychics and horoscopes and still be a Christian? Right here. Where does it say in the Bible that I can't be preoccupied with serving money on myself and still be a Christian? Right here. Idolatry, sexual immorality, paganism, drinking blood is what the, 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 they're, they're talking about there. These are major categories that evidence that the old you isn't dead. That you have not, in fact, been born again. How could they possibly say that? Because a tree is known by its fruit. And so there has, to, there has to be conversion at a heart level. Our, our problem in church is when we try to disciple unconverted people. And everyone's arguing. Well, I don't want to do that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. It's what the Bible says. Yeah. I, I got this new version of the Bible. It's called the Choose Your Own Adventure. <laughs> and I just... <laughs> There's parts that I don't like, so I just choose my own adventure. I go to the ones that I really like. <laughs> Romans 8.1, that's my favorite. There's no condemnation. <laughs> I just do whatever I want. <laughs> it's just the big lens I have on the whole thing. Oh, well, that's not right. <laughs> Says you. Okay. But here the church is wrestling with essentials and non-essentials. And praise God, they're like, you know what? Circumcision, non-essential. But what does that represent? All kinds of hoops to jump through to culturally please people that feel like your suit, your tattoo, your earring, your whatever, all that stuff is really, really important. And it's like, you know what? Let's just, let's major on the majors. However, majoring on the majors doesn't mean getting soft on what it means to walk with Jesus. And walking with Jesus is being like Jesus. And we can be saved, but we need to be sanctified. And sanctification is laying aside those things. And what they're saying is, at a salvation level, if you don't pull these weeds, they're going to choke out the seed of the good news in your life. And so we need to not make it hard. Listen. He said we shouldn't make it hard for those who are turning to God. So here's the question. Okay, I'm going to act it out. Let's just say God is over here. If I'm turning to God, it means I'm turning from what? I'm turning from idolatry and sexual immorality and pagan practice, witchcraft. I'm, tur I'm turning from that. I'm not going, oh, hey, God, uh, do, do you like my sexual practices? Well, it's an open book test. Let's see. Oh, no, you don't. Well, praise God, I prayed that prayer, right? The church is saying, actually, you've got to pull that weed. There, there's some essentials. 
idolatry, sexual immorality, paganism, spiritism. That stuff has to be uprooted. Why? Because if you let it grow, it's going to choke the seed. And so they spoke to it. Here's where I want us to just begin to set our sights. Then the leaders, after that foundation was laid, they recognized the move of God in Antioch as an end time move of God. And that's what we're praying into and asking the Lord to help us be a part of. They quote the prophet Amos. And they, and they say, in the last days, God says, I will return. And I will rebuild David's fallen tent. And its ruins I'll rebuild and I'll restore it. That the remnant of men who seek the Lord and all the Gentiles, Gentiles is just a Bible word for people that aren't Jewish, all of the other nations who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things that have been known for ages. So what they're saying is, in the last days, we're living in the last days. Since the day of Pentecost, we've been living in the last days. Here we are in these last days, and God says, here's what I'm doing in the last days. Now, if, this was, it, was, if it was the last days in the book of Acts, it's the really last days now. And if they recognize what was happening in Antioch as an end time move of God, then we're wise to pray, Lord, the grace that was on them then and there, release that grace on us here and now. Because what we want to be a part of is the end time move of God. And the end time move of God is the rebuilding of David's fallen tent. And so this requires insight. This requires understanding to know what that means. What is David's fallen tent? It's a call to be a people that minister to the Lord 24-7. That's what David's fallen tent is. For the 33-year reign of David, when he was the king of Israel, he introduced a completely novel form of worship. And it was characterized by open access to the presence of God. The ark of the covenant, the ark of God's testimony, the ark that carried the manifest presence of the, of the Lord in the Old Testament, God's presence on earth was in one place at one time in terms of manifest presence. It was the ark. And that ark was supposed to be on the inside of, you know, there's a, a, the, the, the tabernacle. There was supposed to be an outer court and an inner court and then the most holy place. And there was supposed to be priests that had different outfits and they had different tasks and they had different sacrifices. They had blood and guts and smoke and all kinds of things they needed to do. And everyone just had to come and, you know, offer a sacrifice to the priest and they'd cut the throat, they'd do it for you. And then you just smelled the incense and worship God from a distance. And one guy got to go into the most holy place once a year. And David comes along and he gets an idea. And he's like, I love the presence of God. What if instead of all that stuff that was God's idea, that he gave specific blueprints to Moses for like weeks on a mountain while he's writing it down. No offense, God, but I had an idea. What if we put the ark in a big tent that was open and then we like hired musicians and we just worshiped all the time and we just came into your presence nonstop. And it's like, there's no Pharisees in the Old Testament, but if there was, 
They'd be like, well, you can't do that. But Dave was like, I know. But it's really awesome. Let's try it. And so for 33 years of David's reign, there was open access to the presence of God. And the people were were exposed to the manifest presence of the Lord. They lived there. And there were people that worshiped and prayed 24 hours a day. It was their job. And you could come into the presence of the Lord at any time. And you could just worship and be before. What I'm saying to you is David revolutionized humanity's understanding of worship altogether. Up until then, worship was just, it was sacrificial and liturgical and outfit changes and all that stuff. But David was like, what if we just like grabbed a guitar and sang some stuff? And so you could be like, well, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if God likes that, but the Bible says that David was a man after God's heart. He can't be written off as a fanatic. He had the favor of God on his life. God loved David so much, he was like, when I take on human flesh, I'm going to come through your bloodline. My son's going to be called your son. You're a man after my heart. And for the 33 years that David reigned, the people experienced the open tent of the presence of God and came into the manifest presence of the Lord whenever they needed to just to be in the presence of God. And the Bible says through the prophet Amos, and this is what James picked up on in our text in Acts chapter 15, that, that, that there was this heart cry in God. And he said, in the last days, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to rebuild Moses' fallen tabernacle, and I'm not going to rebuild Solomon's temple, though people get excited about that. God, <laughs> maybe you missed that. But <laughs> do you know what God's excited about? He's, he's not excited about rebuilding a temple. That, that's, that's people with charts and graphs on TBN. What God's excited about? God's excited about rebuilding David's fallen tent. He's excited about building a place of 24-7 access to worship the Lord. He's excited about a people that actually move into his presence and live under his presence and live a lifestyle of worship and prayer. He's excited about people who would get the heart of ministering to him. And he said, it's so important to me that in the last days I'm going to rebuild it. So what was James saying as he quoted Amos? He was like, guess what, guys? These guys didn't decide to just go start something down in Antioch. They're the vehicles that God used. God's rebuilding David's fallen tent. God's doing something that has the end time move of God on it. And it's for all the nations and it's for all the Gentiles. God says, I'm going to restore it. I'm going to repair it. I'm going to restore its ruins. I'm going to build it as it used to be. And so to set our hearts here and now in 2023, to set our hearts on being a house of worship is to align ourselves with the stated agenda of God. We're setting our hearts on something that God has already said he's doing. And so, so he, he won't get behind Whatever vision we think would be a great idea, but he will get behind a vision that is in line with him, which is, God, we want to see all the nations worship you. Listen to this. I'm going to tie it in. Just, just, just bear with me while I go here. Revelation 7, 9, 10 says this. 
John the Revelator is taken up into the spirit. He sees eternity in a glance, and he sees the, the plan of salvation, and now he's standing at the end of eternity. Huma humanity is, has run its race. There's a new heaven, new earth. He's, he's in the end zone. He's caught the football. He's there, and he's watching it, and he says, after this, I look, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of God and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cry, cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. What John saw in eternity was not a bunch of circumcised believers. He saw all the nations. He saw everybody. He saw different skin colors. He heard different languages. And all of it was pointed to God in worship. The worship that John saw in the book of Revelation is only possible when the church here and now on earth insists on gathering all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, and all nations together. This matters to God. It matters so much to God that until that happens, we miss out on what God is. The worship of how it looks in heaven is how it needs to look here on earth. And this was the priority of the church in Antioch. They were saying, we really want to be a people that are totally going after God and letting whosoever will come with us. We're going to worship God. We're going to reach our world. And so we know that that wasn't the Apostle Paul's only missionary journey, he went on two others. Planted churches all over the place, started reaching people, and we know that, that the apostles then began to spread out globally. Church history tells us the specifics of many of those. This kind of worship matters to God. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God the Father is searching for worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Why does worship matter to God? Why is God searching for worshipers? Because relationship matters to God. And we can't relate to God as common. He's holy. And we approach a holy God with a heart of worship. It's his presence that we feel in this room because we come to him on his terms. A relationship with God is founded upon worshiping him in the beauty of his holiness. And so God is building something in these last days and we get to be a part of it right here. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information on who we are, visit our website at lakebound.ca or download our app for your mobile device.